Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, and property. All that matters in the way it matters at the time it matters. Certainly a tall order, but if we're the only independent conservative show, we got to cover that ground. Others are uncovering thanks to you guys really growing this show, and I really appreciate it. It is Monday, July 24th, and again, slow summer weekend, but it is not slow in my world because there's a few days left until the August recess, which winds up being six weeks. I laid out a vision for what things should look like last week, canceling that recess, doing each of the 12 appropriations bills in public with press conferences, media campaigns, interviews. But of course, no one takes my advice, so they're just going to do Two of the appropriation bills this week, very quickly, barely scraped the surface. You got the FDA appropriations bill is one of them, and they're barely going to even touch on COVID. Um, so, so that's where we're at. We are caught between three factions, I believe. You obviously have the governing class. Uh, you could call it the left, the establishment, the elites, the globalists, whatever, that are dead set on your future being decided by them and in a very nasty way, then there is kind of like the traditional fake opposition. You, know, you could call it the Tories in Europe and, 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 and you know Christian Democrats in Germany and the Republican mainstays, although I would argue that that's increasingly a diminishing just portion of, of power and then you have the number three, which is just the reaction to it, which is the raw kind of populist rebellion reaction to it. I don't like it. It's terrible. I don't like what the elites are doing. And I, I suspect, and, and, and I really say this with trepidation, but I would like to speak for perhaps millions of people that don't have a voice. And I think a lot of you fit into a fourth category, which is, very much that third category that this is horrendous, what do we need to do? But rather than just being reactionary and just honing in on any one tactic, like I'm opposed to this tactic, I'm for this tactic, we need to be more aggressive and crude and crass and this and that as an end to itself, you actually want a vision. You want Chronicles 1232 and of the sons of Issachar, those who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that's the key. The right thing to do actually does change based on the issue and the time. Believe it or not, the right thing to do could change. It's your objective. It's your endpoint, your landing point. That should always roughly be the same. Your principles should be the same. I want this sort of governing model. 
But what do you do when you don't have that governing model? I want to spend some time on that today. What do you do when you live through decades worth and then culminating the last three years of the Fourth Reich COVID fascism with such a manipulated fake market? What do you do? Because you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to, if I take power, I'll be laissez-faire because it's not laissez-faire. You're going to continue all those anti-market policies and all the cascading second and third order of magnitude effects from those policies. How do you navigate wielding power in an era where we have no free market anywhere? What sort of guiding principles should you have? So I want to I want to talk about our economy, um, where things are, what COVID, long economic COVID has done to us, and what needs to be done. And I think through the prism of that, we're going to eschew this false dichotomy between kind of country club, club republicanism and just raw populism, kind of what I always have been calling for at least 12 years, free market populism. You could harness populism as a tool, but where do you want to take it? And that's what we're doing here today. First, our sponsor is Jace Medical. Look, because we don't have a free market, we now have a government that is literally creating artificial shortages in things that you need, blood pressure medication, diabetes, heart health, mental health, you name it. What's going to happen as a recession does set in, and it really is headed there, what is going to happen? Are you going to be left at the mercy of our government like we saw with COVID? No. This time, let's get ahead of the curve. Go to jacemedical.com and enter promo code review for a discount. You go for about 10 minutes worth of uh, paperwork you fill out, or it's not paper, it's online, to get a valid prescription so it's all legal and there's no contraindications, and they will back up a 12-month supply of as many critical medications that you're on. The peace of mind gained by having this kind of long-term supply of your vital medications cannot be overstated when living in the Fourth Reich. So again, go to J. A-S-E-Medical.com, jacemedical.com, enter promo code REVIEW. And, and, and by the way, just on that note, I do want to say, you know, I'm looking at the FDA appropriations bill, and I'm not seeing important measures on, like, for example, we should have an amendment to this bill that the FDA can never come out and do what they did with COVID, recommend against doctors using treatments that have already been approved by the FDA off-label. I think that's that's really, really important. I, I do want to give a shout-out to Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know I've been tough on her with her support for McCarthy, but she does she has been put, submitting some good amendments to these bills, and she does have a bill, an amendment to the, again, it's called the Agriculture FDA Appropriations Bill, probably will come up for a vote on Thursday, uh, rules committee it's listed as amendment number 45 prohibiting funding for all covid vaccines all i mean and that should be in there again and, and and ideally it wouldn't just be one member having to submit amendment that sadly will definitely be voted down we'll give you the vote when it happens this should be backed by leadership but of course it's not this is the type of amendment you should have full-court press from conservative media. But then again, we don't have a conservative media, a conservative movement that is geared towards objectives like a movement would. It's geared as an industry towards monetizing grievance. And what happens when you monetize grievance, not only you know is it 
just kind of grifting, but also often you dance around in a circle and you wind up landing in the same place where you started. Where, you know, it's all good. So it's like you're either Mike Pence, kind of a fake Christian who's like, let's just be nice to the left and agree to the left, or you're Andrew Tate. And it's like pornography is great, trafficking is great, um, acting disgusting is great just because he says one or two things about the ruling class that we agree with. Free market populism versus pure populism. So let's let's move on to the main course. I, I want to make sure we get to the main course today, and then maybe we could come back to some of the other legislative stuff. So we're basically at this point in the economy. As I've been writing, I have a long article today uh, explaining this. Can't, can't afford a house, can't afford a car. We're running out of cash. Um, we're headed into a period of stagflation. And basically, you know, we never really had a pure free market, but then things really changed in 2008 when the Federal Reserve and Congress just pumped trillions of dollars into the economy. Um, and what that did is that tilted the axis of the economy towards the large banks, all the credit unions, community banks shut down. Uh, our healthcare policy, Obamacare, came to you know fruition a couple years after that. Uh, basically, you have five insurance companies. They bought up everything, and that created uh, on the supply side, on the on the provider side, a monopoly, mergers, acquisitions. None of this was natural. Healthcare is obviously the biggest sector. It's you know one sixth of the economy. So you have that, and then culminating with COVID where they literally shut things down, created artificial supply chain problems everywhere long-term, and literally, almost like if you were trying to come in Deus Machina as the government and design an economy for, for the top 10 companies like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon, you could not have done a better job. That's what they did. They tilted the entire economy long term. So even after you have the reopening, we don't have a free market. And what little free market we had when we grew up, as we were growing up in the previous decades, we no longer have. So what should be your guiding principle if you're a presidential candidate and you assume power, what, what should it be? On the one hand... We need to even the playing field by reversing what the government did. You have to look at free market outcomes and reverse engineer the anti-market policies they did. You can't just have free market inputs, right, and not focus on outcomes because then you'll say, well, I don't believe in tilting a playing field. Well, what if the playing field is tilted? If I come in and I'm even-handed henceforth, again, that's like the equivalent of – uh, like I said last week, a, a baseball team locking up the umpires and then just coming in and scoring tw tw 20 runs in one inning without having any rules, even the most basic rules like three outs and balls and strikes and whatever. And then finally you restore order and you're like, hey, we're going to restore the, the ball game, the three out rule with them up 20, ru 20 runs when every one of those tw 20 runs were not built upon natural abilities and advantages of that team, but literally rigging the rules. So no, you have to reverse engineer that. Now, you have to have a fair game. You can't just come in with, on the other hand, oh, this is unfair. I'm going to make sure we 
have an unlimited amount of outs forever for, for our side, but you do have to reverse engineer to the best of your ability the degree of ill-gotten advantage that the other side had. So that's populism with a guiding principle, with a clear objective, where you focus on outcomes, not tactics, meaning you can't be like, I'm always for the little guy, or I'm always for the big guy, or um, I'm always for this sort of you know, subsidy or this sort of tax cut. Or this. You, you got to look at the time you live in and you got to tether those policies towards an objective, right? So if I have a free market objective and you have it balanced to the right, I don't mean ideologically, I'm just saying a direction. So, you, you know, 30 degrees to, to the right, well, you have to come in with a tactic of trying to shift it 30 degrees to the left to reach that same equilibrium that you always supported. And that's kind of where we are after COVID. And I want to say this in support of a policy that I believe I want to see presidential candidates um, support, and that is some version of a tax moratorium or specific dramatic tax cuts for small businesses whether you want to define it as you know under 100 employees and then maybe you have a sliding scale like a 5 year moratorium under 100 employees and 1 to 250 employees would be 3 year moratorium and 250 to 500 would be uh, a, a 2 year moratorium on corporate taxes even moratorium that you want to start a business or you already are a business under that threshold you're going to have no corporate taxes for the next number of years to reshift the balance that that the COVID policies, the Federal Reserve, certainly after 2020, but really after 2008, shifted. And if you don't do that, that is anti-market. That is anti-market because you're going to continue a consolidation. What we now have is a fake economy built on a handful of companies that are literally revolving doors with government. Government comes in Dex Machina, gives them market share, and then now they work together to impose things like central digital bank currency, ESG, vaccine mandates, and things like that. That is fascism. That's not freedom. That's not free market. Now, on the other hand, you just can't dance around in a circle saying, oh, you know, it's the big corporations that are killing us, you know, without any kind of specific measured plan. But that's the plan I want to support. Now, first, before we continue, our next segment is sponsored by Barrel Buddy. You've got to have a plan to clean your guns. Um, you can't leave your guns dirty. Uh, typically, I've used in the past these cloth uh, patches. The problem is patches make irregular contact with the bore. They don't engage the grooves because they're not designed to. It's a flat you know, cloth. Barrel Buddy is a cartridge that compresses into the bore and pushes into the rifling, um, gives you really a 360-degree full compression, both in terms of the cleaning and also in terms of squeezing the right amount and equal application of the cleaning solvent. Um, their you know patches drip; they have splatter, makes it smelly. And you're you know if you're especially if you're do, trying to do it inside, there's lint, fibers, and threads. None of that is going to come out with your barrel buddy. 
Um, also, people use these boar snakes as well that that don't work as well. Um, they're difficult to pull through, and um, they also get very dirty over time. And you know, you're not going to keep disposing them. Usually, you'll you know they're more expensive. You don't reuse toilet paper, right? So why should you reuse your boar snakes? Here, these are all um, disposable. You get 50 of them in one pack for 15 bucks. So very easy, efficient, affordable way of cleaning your guns at BarrelBuddy.com. So what I am proposing is, what, I, what we need at this juncture is a five-year moratorium on corporate taxation or um, either that or some mix of reducing payroll taxes for those small business. Again, you could you could define it by an earnings level, a market cap. You say a market cap of under 100 million or something or a um you know, number of employees make it advantageous to work for a small business. And normally, if you would have come to me 20 years ago, I'd say, that's social engineering. That, that's a government intervention, picking winners and losers we don't, we don't need. But what happens if the government already picked winners and losers? I think this is much more important than the individual taxation. On the individual level, we've had a number of tax cuts. Reagan, Bush, Trump, that knocked out the bottom brackets. It, it really reduced the burden. Uh, There's not much more juice to squeeze out at a federal income tax level. But at a corporate level, we really have this problem. Small businesses were the engine of of freedom in America because that's how you have plenty. You have decentralized sources of goods and services. You have more choice and competition to reduce costs. An engine of economic growth, an engine of employment, employment options. And again, the biggest problem we have faced now is that you have centralized tyranny. So it's not just the typical problems that you know, you've had since the dawn of time with monopolies in terms of choices and pricing, but it's also they can now box you out of the economy. This is where the ESG comes in, the COVID fascism, the vaccine mandates. And I want to say this, it's not just the fact that they shut down small businesses and then Amazon just took off. That's true. But it's more than that. It's that even if you your business was officially open or you could open it, but what happened was there are no customers. That was, that was the issue. Even if you could open a business technically – there were no customers because of the, you know, shutdown and all of the, uh, you know, cascading problems with the supply chain and this and that. So what happened was, and this is true anytime the government creates a shock against the system, whether it's a shock of a lockdown, it's a shock of bailouts, bailout money, it's a shock of federal reserve policies where they create a bunch of loose money and then suddenly tighten it up so then credit is very tough and they create inverted yield curves so now it's tough to lending and and, and small and, and mid-sized banks are getting screwed but Wells Fargo and Bank of America are richer than ever that's not natural that's not the natural order of things 
But then they're, they're able to snatch up all of the customer base that the small businesses couldn't do. My buddy, um, he goes by Frog Capital on uh, Twitter, brilliant economist from Florida. I'd love to have him on the show, but he can't come on because of where he works. He, he put out today, he was showing the earnings from Papa John's. And his point was like, you know, Papa John's is not in the scheme of things a massive company, Mar- you know, market cap. It's one of the largest pizza companies, but it's not it's not anywhere near, you know, Microsoft and and, Veri- and Verizon and Pfizer and whatever. But yet, so even it's not even that big, but what happened was when they shut had the shutdown, so they innovated and they were able to create a relationship with Uber for deliveries. But your mom and pop um you know, pizza store couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. They obviously had no ability to do that. So even if they got PPP, you know, handout money, but in the, so, so, okay, I cover your losses for the lockdown, but you permanently lost a certain market share because the economy has now been built on a new paradigm. A hundred percent. So it's a free market now created off of pure socialism. It's like the government comes in, it's, it's almost like you know you have a choo-choo train on the tracks and you come in and you rewind it, put it on another track. Yeah, henceforth it's moving naturally, but nothing about that is natural. That's what I always call venture socialism. That's the American economy. So what has happened is now we have a permanent economy being built on a smaller and smaller share of companies. And that's not just a fairness issue or a monopoly pricing issue. That's a freedom issue. Both in terms of availability, like we talk about, you know, availability of products, the government could just choke things off. With their few left-wing allies, you know, it's the same Steven Mnuchin, Scott Gottlieb type of people that serve in the Treasury serve in HHS. They run these companies. Debbie Burks is now becoming a CEO of some healthcare company. And that's what they do. That needs to be reverse engineered. Let me give you some, some uh, data points here. Almost 3,000 firms declared bankruptcy in the last six months. A 68% jump from last year. And again, these are the permanent effects of not just the lockdown but but what's going on with the endless cycle of debt inflation credit all that stuff that we keep talking about i have an article out today the total number of um filings for bankruptcy for the first half of the year surpassed those of any comparable period since 2010 which was you know still dealing with the melees of the great recession even surpassing the record-breaking wave during the first half of 2020. We had more bankruptcies the first half of this year than 2020 because ultimately the government kind of, you know, funded it. But because of all that spending, guess what? It's created a credit problem now. Meanwhile, Microsoft, as we mentioned, 
they just crossed the trillion market cap before COVID. Now they're making a run at three trillion. Similar thing for Apple. This year, the the 15 largest S&P 500 companies are up 35%. Meanwhile, the median S&P 500 company is only up 4%. The top 10 NASDAQ stocks currently reflect a record 62% of the entire index. And, and, And you could see that there was a big bump in that after 2008 and then after COVID. Those are the two big socialist takeovers of our economy. So much so they have to re they keep reorienting the index to try to make it more reflective. But 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 the point still stands that the entire growth is built on this. And and I mentioned this from my, my buddy Frog Capital um a couple weeks ago. The entire GDP growth of our economy in Nominal GDP in dollar terms since COVID, it went from 21.1 trillion to 26.9 trillion. So it went up 5.8 trillion. Do you know that the market cap of the largest seven companies, okay, the market cap of the largest seven companies. Grew from four seven four point seven trillion to ten point eight five at the same time, so their market cap grew six point one five trillion. So you know what that means? <laughs> that if you subtract those seven companies, we've actually gone slightly backwards over a three year period, which is astounding. You, know, you could have a contraction for a quarter, two, three quarters at most, but technically there's been a slight contraction. The entirety of the growth is from seven companies. That's the thing. Um, Revenue of the top seven, so that's market cap. You look at revenue. Revenue of the top seven companies is up 71% since the, at least January 2020. 682 billion average revenue. Um, But if you take the average growth of the S&P 500, so most of the other 500 companies, it's been about 7.72%. So the top seven companies grew 10 times faster. Again, you could plot it on a graph. This is not natural. As I always quote from Andrew Jackson's veto of the second central bank, he said, it is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. He had no problem with God-ordained inequality resulting from natural law. Distinctions in society will always exist under every just government, equality of talents, education, or wealth, and the full enjoyment of, of the gifts of heaven and the fruits of superior industry, economy, and virtue. Every man is equally entitled to pr- protection by law. But when the laws undertake to add to these natural and just advantages artificial distinctions, that's when we got a problem. So whether it's at a corporate level, whether it's at an individual level, COVID remade our economy. But I'm telling you, we cannot live like this. This is not normal. Another interesting thing is the Russell 2000 versus NASDAQ, if you kind of compare it. So the Russell 2000 
is the small cap. That's reflective of the 2000 small cap. It's like, you know, those with, and when you say small cap, obviously it's publicly traded, but we, they're large companies. Um, they're not mom and pop shops, um, but, you know, they're like 2 billion market share, 5 billion mar- market cap. I mean, not, um, you know, hundreds of billions. So anyway, in order to service the debt and print money, the Fed policies made banks reliant on artificially low rates, right? So now in order to deal with the fallout, they had to raise it quickly and they panicked. Well, what does that do now? The M2 money supply is like the lowest ever now after being the highest ever. Boom, ba boom, back and forth, back and nothing is natural about this. So this has locked up credit, harming both the smaller banks but also the smaller businesses that rely more on credit as the engine of their growth. Those that don't have the economies of scale. This is from a Yahoo article from a couple months ago. I think fully encapsulates this point. Fears about the financial sector due to the recent failure of some regional and mid-sized banks have hit the Russell 2000 index, which has a 10% allocation to bank stocks particularly hard. In contrast, the NASDAQ 100 currently has no bank exposure at all. The smaller companies that make up the Russell 2000 typically require greater ongoing access to bank funding than the, than the larger, more financially stable firms in the NASDAQ 100. Banks' willingness to lend is likely to decrease going forward. Issuance of debt has also declined sharply this year due to market volatility and other factors potentially crippling small caps growth prospects. Again, this is all designed to create more bankruptcies, fewer companies all at the top and then as a parallel to other sectors the banking sector itself having fewer banks and that really started with the 2008 stuff the bailouts the bank bailout era was the equivalent of of Obamacare to healthcare what it did to independent practice that's what we saw with your community banks and credit unions all going going belly up so think about if all the market cap all the lending power all the cash is basically basically the government and the Federal Reserve, central banks, and then they have their satellite fake propped up private industries. That's what they are. All, all working based on their manipulated you know, policies of what sort of assets they buy, 2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities, and then obviously the manipulated artificially low, artificially high, up, down, up, down uh, interest rates. All to grow woke and weaponized government, service more debt, create more inflation, which cripples more individuals, small businesses. They can't afford it, can't afford the loans. That's why you have record, you know, rejection of loans now, crippling of car loans, all this stuff. None of this is normal. None of this is normal. And now the yield curve is the deep, it has the deepest inversion since 1981. Again, the expectation – see, no, normally what happens? What happens is when you go and you know you want to lock up your money for three months versus two years versus ten years. Well, the three-month is going to have the lowest yield, right? Because you, know, you, you expect less on your return. If you're going to lock it up for longer, I expect more on my return, and that supply and demand is going to drive up the yield. We now have an inverted curve, perfectly inverted, the most inverted it's been since the 81 crisis. 
where the two-year treasury note has a higher yield than the 10-year and the three-month has an even higher than that. And that's because the government is, several factors, but among them, the government is so desperate, unnaturally, none of this is free. It is, the government has a monopoly over debt and money supply, so all the printing, they need to service the debt with securities, so they're desperate. So it creates, well, a lot of demand now for, to gobble up those short-term treasuries. So, but long-term, there's not as much faith in the economy. So think about it. If you're, if you're a small bank, what do you do? You borrow low and you lend high. Now you can't do that. You borrow high and you lend, uh, whoops, the rates are low. That's a loss. How do you deal with that? Locks up credit. Banks go insolvent. Small businesses go insolvent. Hence your bankruptcies. None of this is natural. None of it is natural. It is all created by socialism. So obviously we need to get rid of the you know dual mandate of, of the Federal Reserve to do this. Obviously stop the spending and the debt. Remember, this is not just some sort of government spending. Oh, how does it affect my life? It's destroying the economy. It's permanently lethargic. We're going to have permanent stagflation. Let me, let me just... Uh, Note, the S&P Global U.S. Flash Composite PMI, they came out with, a, it's another leading economic indicator today, the Purchasing Managers Index. And it fell 1.2 points, another retraction to 52 in July. So this guy, Chris Williamson, chief business economist at S&P Global Market Intel, I think he sums up where the economy is. July is seeing an unwelcome combination of slower economic growth, weaker job creation, gloomier business confidence, and sticky inflation. We used to call it stagflation. We have the worst of both. The overall rate of output growth measured across manufacturing and services is consistent with GDP expanding at an annualized quarterly rate of approximately 1.5%. Now, we're going to have the numbers later this week, but that's very anemic. And again, like I said, almost all of that is being carried by a handful of companies. If you would actually look at the real economy, minus Microsoft, Apple, you know, Google, Amazon, whatever, Facebook, Tesla, it's like the economy is literally in a recession. If you, if you would subtract that, there's nothing there. However, growth is being entirely driven by the service sector meaning we're not building anything, and in particular rising spending from international clients, which is helping offset a, a becalmed manufacturing sector and increasingly subdued demand from U.S. households and businesses because the stimulus cash is gone now. And now they're out of, ca- out of money, record credit card debt, record prices, record government debt, and that's where we are. That's where we are. The stickiness of price pressures, meanwhile, remains a major concern as the survey index of selling prices has acted as a reliable leading indicator of consumer price inflation anticipating the easing of 3% in June. It sends a worrying signal that further falls in the rate of inflation below 3% may prove elusive in the near term. And and I think what that means is this. This is exactly, and I'm glad this chief economist of the S&P Global Intel is saying what I've been saying. They're telling you, oh, the inflation numbers were 10%, and now it's down to, to you, know, you know, like 5% core, you know, a little more than three in total. 
but that's built off of the record inflation. In other words, you need to reverse that in order to get back to equilibrium. So I'm glad he is saying that, like, you know, if you continue 3 4% CPI every month, built off of the, that, that, the current baseline, that's not good. This is literally stagflation. And that's not natural. It's all created by the government where the economy is slow, but the prices are high. And it's all built off of a fake economy. So this is my punchline, why I believe we need, I want to see a candidate come out with a moratorium of corporate taxation as well as a, a cut in payroll taxes for small businesses. We need to, re, it is a, just like it's a national security thing, we say it's like a national security uh, objective to have, you know, certain things manufactured here, certain things need to rely upon, weapons, obviously, and, and medicines. It's the same thing. It's a security problem. I don't necessarily mean like in terms of like war, although it could be that too, but in terms of our values in the Fourth Reich and liberty to have everything being done by seven companies. We're screwed then. We have to reorient things. I want policies that are specifically going to juice up the Russell 2000 versus the NASDAQ. Not because of inherently for one versus the other. See, the difference between us and Bernie Sanders and increasingly some fake people on the right that sound like that is they're like, they identify rightly a symptom of a problem that they created. The problem is we had too, too much so socialism. So we try to have then come and say have this false choice of unbridled free market in something that's not free. No, you need to reverse engineer back to a free market as much as you can. And, and by the way, just in general, this is why my principle, not just on economics, but on legal and statutory things. You know, we had this debate last week where 83 rhinos voted against requiring uh, the airliners to go and uh, reinstate reinstate those who those pilots that were kicked out for the vax mandate like you can't tell them what to do it's like what do you mean that entire mandate only came because the government did it and the government monopolized the marketplace, the creation of the vaccine is the government. It wouldn't have been there in a free market. So you can't just turn off the, the switch. Oh, oh, now we're back to free. You can do whatever you want. Hey, you want to get rid of all of those policies. You get rid of discrimination. You get rid of OSHA and ADA. Then, then we could talk, but you have to apply it evenly. That's not free and fair. And by the way, there's another fascinating point. I just want to bring out and it's a little bit in the weeds but i think it's worth bringing out here when you talk about free market so remember i mentioned last week on the faa authorization but i was like the entire faa controls the airlines like they have the most cumbersome mandates that are costly and everything that are 50 times more than just don't fire someone for not getting poison that the government created erroneously and needs to take responsibility for but these same SOBs are like, no, you can't tell them what to do. They supported a bill that kept in place these insane mandates that are going to continue to jack up the price of airfare and make the entire experience stupid. So great article put out here by the Center uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. 
Samuel Peterson. And he talks about the fact that the FAA authorization bill passed overwhelmingly, should not have passed. And and this is why you need to cancel the August recess and have a long debate, because I didn't even know about this provision. But, you know, $100 billion reauthorization all the way until 2028. Now we have no leverage to deal with this. So, basically, it allows for 150 additional hours of high-gravity simulator time to count towards mandatory 1,500 hours requirement for pilots in training. Okay, so that's a little bit more flexibility. It's a good provision. But 1,500 hours is insane of flight instruction. Everyone's complaining we have a pilot shortage. So ironically, they're opposing one policy that would have helped somewhat alleviate that by reinstating our best pilots. And they they are going to be your best pilots who didn't take the vaccine. They're free thinking. Which is, I would argue, a free market policy based on the fact that it got there based on anti-market. And they're ignoring and or downright supporting and not getting rid of another mandate that totally is anti-market that the airline companies should be setting based on what is natural. It was the 2009 crash of Colgan Air, Flight 3407. The FAA changes requirements for pilots to earn their air transportation license from 250 to 1,500 hours. So because of one event, one event, they just randomly come in and increase it by, what is this, sixfold. Um, and, and actually, in that case, evidently, in that flight, both pilots on, on uh, board there actually did have more than 1,500 required, required minimum. They actually had tremendous amount. Okay? So the whole thing was just a false... And, and, and again, this is what happens when you have false populism. Oh, there's something we need to we need to just do something. What I'm saying when we need to wield power is to very targeted reverse engineer their interventions. We just come in. Oh, we need like rail. Say you have some of these people with like, um, uh, you know the the rail stuff after East Palestine. This JD Vance bill. It's just pure populism that actually empowers the same powers. You know, it's got to be targeted. But anyway, it's it's a huge barrier to entry. It's a huge barrier. It's it's needless. You want safety, but for government to just mandate it, it's ridiculous. In 2022, the airline industry required 12 to 15,000 new pilots, while expecting the training rate could only produce 6,000, less than half. Um, now their wages will be great. The wage demand will be great, but it's not good for the, for, for all of us. And there's no evidence that this helps. Regulators have not been able to prove that the increased hours requirement increases safety. An FAA evaluation of the rule states the FAA was unable to find a quantifiable relationship between the 1500 hour requirement and airplane accidents and hence no benefit from the requirement. For most accidents reviewed by the FAA, both pilots had more than 1,500 hours of flight time. And for those second-in-command that did not, there were other casual factors identified by the NTSB. 
And and that's the thing. And also, he notes, you know, this is a huge market distortion. All these fake free marketers, this is the type of thing to be free market over. Because what it does is it force. it's kind of like Common Core or like Bush's No Child Left Behind, where you don't teach quality education. They just taught for the tests, you know, those specific test scores. It's a similar thing here. You just get your freaking hours. Because of the unstructured nature of the hours and the fact that many of these hours are spent flying single-engine planes in good weather, pilots have less real-life commercial flight time and may not know from experience how to handle situations like you know, icings and lightning strikes. Moreover, the U- EU and UK do not have 1,500-hour requirement, and there is literally zero proven difference in terms of safety. They only require around 200, 250 hours. So this is the type of stuff that should have been done, but the FAA reauthorization was rushed through. They're rushing through these appropriation bills without, first of all, even the good provisions messaging them properly to the public. And B, you know, you miss a lot of good opportunities. But I think this this juxtaposition of, oh, I don't want a mandate on the airlines to get rid of the vaccine mandate that we, the government, really created – but I will get involved in these cumbersome things. It was just the funniest thing. It is the most regulated industry in the country. It's like quasi-military almost. That's what an FAA authorization bill is. And it's like, no, we don't want to tell them not to give people poison. But this is the type of economy based on the regulatory structure. And, And also, because of regulations like this, this is why... When is the last time we had a major airline break in? Just like with healthcare, you're never going to have another insurer break in. By the way, interesting stat United Health is the second largest company in the US. It's not second, uh, seventh, seventh largest. United Health is the largest insurer. One third of their insurance is Medicare, Medicaid, and the rest is really from the employer sponsored tax benefit. Most of their profit is built off the government. It's a complete joke. We don't have a free market. So these are some guiding principles on how you operate. You can't just be, you know, endless. I'm going to give subsidies and whatever, handouts. But you need to, as best as you can, reverse engineer the effects of those anti-market policies to achieve a specific equilibrium. That's what we need. Now, we went... Obviously, very, very long on this, but I do want to just get to one important story, the Fargo, North Dakota terrorist attack. Now, you might be like, what Fargo, North Dakota terrorist attack? Well, that's the point. You haven't heard about it. Um, you know, you think you, you look ominously to the other side of the pond. In France, you watch, oh my gosh, they let in you know, hundreds of thousands of these hyenas rampaging through unassimilable people that just want to subvert it. I got news for you. We have that a lot quieter in America. We have brought in several million Muslims. Again, they're not all problematic, but when you bring in that many, that quickly from Sharia sort of mentality, you are going to have a lot of these kind of stealth terrorists. And there's a terrorist attack that, of course, the FBI doesn't want to call a terrorist attack, this guy, Mohammed Barakat, in basically he was, they believe it was on 20, 25th Street in Fargo. There was a crash 
It was just a you know ordinary crash. So you have a bunch of first responders and cops come. It appears that the guy wanted to kill cops, um, and that was part of the jihad. And then go over to the. They had this big fair down. It's called the Downtown Street Fair. Those of you in North Dakota know what it is. Uh, according to the state attorney general, it looks like he was going to target that. It was five minutes away, and he he literally was planning to mow down endless people. He had eighteen hundred live rounds uh, from um, in his vehicle. He had three loaded rifles, four loaded handguns. He had gas canisters, explosives, a grenade. Um, it was made with um, an uh, explosive compound made from ammonium nitrite nitrate and aluminum powder. It's very, very flammable. And, you know, luckily it didn't happen that way. It was just, it was terrible. One cop was killed. So he started, he fired 60 rounds like randomly out of his car. So you have like a bunch of cops around the crash site. He pulls up out of nowhere, just starts shooting at, this was July 14th. I've been meaning to talk about this all last week, killing officer Jake Wallen, a, a, you know, an army veteran, and seriously injuring two other officers, Tyler Hawes and Andrew Dotis, as well as a female civilian. Um, and this one hero cop was able to shoot, disable his gun from like 75 feet away with a handgun. Officer Zach Robinson, and and eventually killed him, which was, you know, so that stopped this. But he, his final, they found um, on his computer, he was Googling mass casualty events. He was Googling all this stuff. And the final article that appeared on his browser history was a KV, KVRR article, a local article titled Thousands Enjoy First Day of Downtown Fargo Street Fair. So this is a huge deal. Um, the guy has no criminal history, so it's not like a, a jailbreak type of like thug, street thug. He doesn't have a manifesto. He doesn't meet the kind of demographic of these psychotic, you know, attention-getting mass shooters. This was clearly a terrorist attack. And Daniel Greenfield of Front Page Mag, is he's done good work on this for, for two decades. This guy um, was a Syrian refugee that Obama brought in during that involvement in Syria. This is what the global war on terror did. We refereed every Islamic civil war and went over there so we could bring them here. Oh, we got to fight them there to protect us here. And really, it's just like, you don't let them in. That was the lesson of 9-11, to the extent it was even real, um, or a lot of it was real. Who knows? But to the extent it was you know, organically planned by external forces, um, you don't freaking let them in. And we let them in. Right, that is that is the story, and we let these punks in, and we let in thirty thousand Syrians. Just one point six percent were Christian, by the way. So, oh, it's persecution, refugee asylum. What a joke! So you have Sunnis and Shias fighting, which is what it is, because Assad is Shia, and most of the insurgent groups were ISIS, Al Qaeda, were Sunni, Al Nusra, whatever. But then you had that they were fighting Hezbollah, which is Shia, which is aligned with, with Assad. And we go and we bring in equally both sides of it, like a bunch of idiots. And what we've done over the last two decades of refugee resettlement is, it's not just you go to big cities that doesn't look like America. It's places like Lewiston, Maine. Obviously, the Somali enclaves in Columbus and, and uh, um, what do you call it? Um... 
say, uh, Minneapolis, but then you also have smaller areas like St. Cloud. Then you have Lincoln, Nebraska, Amarillo, Texas. So Fargo, Daniel Greenfield reports, is 8% foreign-born. Much of that population comes from the Middle East, Islamic areas in Africa, like Sudan and Somalia. Even much of the European refugees is a Bosnian, which is going to be Islamic. Fargo's population shot up from 74,000 in 1990 to 128,000 today. Somalis flooded Fargo, as did Iraqis, Bosnians, Bangladeshians. Amid the pure snows rose mosques, ethnic welfare, nonprofits, halal markets, and other outposts of new population. By 2000, 600 Somali families occupied Fargo. By 2004, Somalis outnumbered Hispanics in the Fargo public school system. Refugee resettlement led by the Lutheran Social Services continued bombarding the state with foreign migrants, 70% of them embedded in the Fargo area. And I looked up at the Center for Immigration Studies. They have their, you know, Stephen Camerata's recent report on school districts. The Fargo City School District is 23% foreign-born. That's insane for a place like Fargo. So what they're doing now is they're going into the heartland of America. And, and, and it's not now. It's been going on forever. And seeding it with all these people that, you know, you, you picture, oh, you know, L.A., New York is, um, you know – under constant threat of terrorist attack, imagine being someone going to a Fargo, uh, you know, F- Fargo Fair, a place like Fargo. Who would have ever thought? And by the way, you know, Fargo's already up to 128,000, but they're, they, they've done this to even cities 50, 70,000 people. And Doug Burgum, the dirtbag governor running as a fake candidate for president, he embraced this left and right. He's one of those governors when Trump said, look, you don't have to take refugees in the states if you don't want. You have to affirmatively opt in. He opted in right away, right away. So in case you thought that you can move from the East Coast or the West Coast to the you know, heartland to escape these problems, just know that our federal government, with the help of red state rhinos, they will follow you wherever you go. So, again, I mean, these are things that we need to look at policy leverage points. And, look, I could talk for the rest of the day on a bunch of other issues we don't have time for. Um, But uh, one one other just issue I do want to approach before we sign off here. Normally, I don't care about foreign affairs anymore because it's like we have too many problems in our own country to even care about it. But there's something that really uh, uh, intersects with a principle I've been talking about for years. It was the subject of my first book, Stolen Sovereignty. It's the judicial reform bill in Israel. Some of you might have seen over the last few months that the State Department and the CIA have basically been funding a color revolution in Israel. Um, Netanyahu's government is pushing judicial reform. And basically, it's to align the Israeli judiciary with a degree of judicial supremacism that's still even worse than America's appalling level of judicial supremacism, but better than what it is now. So basically now in Israel, so the Supreme Court has a veto on everything the parliament does. And and at least like in America, you need some sort of like fake standing, like it's a case and a controversy, and then through that they decide. Here they could straight up just take your thing to court, like without like, 
a legitimate case in controversy. It's just a straight up veto, like like a presidential veto. You have a president could veto Congress pass something. So it's the same thing here. They veto it. Number two, they don't have a constitution. So it's not like, oh, well, we, we feel it, uh, it, it violates this clause of this provision of the Constitution. No, it's they could say, we feel this is, uh, uh, you know, something that's, I forget the wording, but it's racist, it's incendiary, it's, it's not good for the people, it's just a bad law, and they could just make it up. They could just make it up. And then, now you might think, oh my gosh, like that's like a, the worst tyranny you can imagine. It's even worse. You might think, well, okay, the only thing you have now is at least you, the Knesset could pick the successors of the, you know, the justices when they retire. No, the justices themselves pick their successors. So it's a, literally a judicial dictatorship. So it's a very minor thing, and I don't, I, I think it was scaled back from before, but but I know it does take care of like they can't just knock something down helter skelter it has to show why it violates the law or something um i don't know if it has a knesset uh picking them um but 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 it's it is insane and they have all these violent protests and everything our government is funding that that in itself is newsworthy but it's also there's a reason why the other side wants judicial supremacism that is their biggest way to continue their oligarchy. And again, I'm just going to reiterate, I would rather give up on a so-called conservative Supreme Court and say, all right, you don't like their uh, decisions, you could ignore them because they're going to ignore them anyway if we can do that in red states. That's ultimately where we need to go, more of a decentralized you know, constitutional decompartmentalism. Again, it doesn't mean that there's not a role for the court, um, but just the notion that they have the final say in the Constitution itself is not true. But this is a very, very important issue, and you know it's something we have to watch out with. But again, just to zoom out, we have a scenario where we have an oligarch that we're up against. There's growing anxiety all over the country, all over the world against it, rightfully so. What we need is leadership to guide it exactly where that needs to go. So you don't have a French Revolution where you come in a full circle and you empower really the same things. Different people, same idea. How do we reconstitute a great American Revolution? And that's what we're trying to do here. Trying to create fixed principles and tactics that are appropriate for the times we live in to achieve those timeless principles. Let me know your thoughts, comments, questions, and concerns at Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com with a lot more coming up this week. We'll have some guests on as well. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.